Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Good morning, church. So good to be with you. Well, we're continuing in our series, Hell to the Hustle, where we've been asking the question, how do we escape this thing that we have now called the hustle for so many weeks? Some of us feel like we're just doing too much, and conversely, some of us feel like we're not doing enough, and both have us feeling exhausted and, 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 and wrung out. And in this series, we've been looking to Scripture and asking the Holy Spirit to lead us towards living more wholeheartedly, if I could put it that way. And the title for today's sermon is Fasting as a Beloved Bride. And as you can imagine, we're going to be talking about fasting today. Now, I'm not a mind reader, but I know as soon as I said the word fasting, some of you, that, that, that little shiver went down your spine. And uh, some of you are already not here anymore, so I, I don't blame you for that. How could he possibly be talking about fasting on Memorial Day weekend? How did this get approved? Not quite sure, but these are normal and expected responses to, to this idea of fasting. And someone in the, in the mini-sermon prior said, I thought you were talking metaphorically. No, I'm talking about actually not eating when I say the word fasting. But what I want us to sh- show you today is that fasting is actually an amazing gift and grace from God. Now, there are many different kinds of fast that, uh, that we see in Scripture all throughout the Old Testament into the New. Uh, but we're going to see in our passage today that Jesus assumed that we as his disciples would fast in a particular spirit. What I would call or what I call fasting in the spirit of the beloved bride or the fast of the beloved bride. Uh, two questions I want us to ask today. First is, why does Jesus call us to fast? And the second is, what are the rewards of fasting? Because he says there are rewards. Explicitly, Jesus said, you will be rewarded for fasting. So first, why does Jesus call us to fast? In Revelation 22, which is the very last chapter in all of Scripture, it's not only the last chapter in Scripture, it's the last chapter in the end of the age, meaning life as we know it now. In that picture, in that chapter, we see the church in her final identity. It's her final hour. It's the generation in which the Lord returns. It's the end times church. Some of you have heard these phrases. And we see this picture of the, of the church. And John in Revelation writes prophetically, The spirit and the bride say, come. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the Maranatha cry. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the cry of the end-time church in her identity as the beloved bride. As a reminder, I think I mentioned this in the past sermon, as a reminder, especially to the men, being the bride of Christ doesn't mean we all get dressed up in a white dress and hold flowers and wait for Jesus to return. Some of us may be holding flowers and wearing a dress at that moment, but that's not at all what it means. It means... Having access to the emotions of God's heart. That's what it means to be the bride. That you and I, as the bride of Christ, unbelievably, we have access to God's heart 
and specifically to the movements of his heart, to his emotions, how he feels about us and the world. It's knowing that our relationship with God, the one that we enjoy today, it's the most important relationship that we will ever have now and through all eternity. That God delights in us, that he loves us. It's a partnership with God in the deepest, truest, and most intimate sense. And this prophetic picture in Revelation 22 it, it, it tells us that God, more than anything else, he yearns for a bride that yearns for him in the way he yearns for us. That's what he wants more than anything. He's yearning for a bride that yearns for him. So if we go all the way back to Exodus, Mount Sinai, Moses is on the, uh, on the mountain and there's thunder and lightning. God gives them the Ten Commandments. What is that, those two tablets? That's the marriage contract. If you look at the details of that story, the whole thing is a Jewish wedding. The hoopah. Do you guys know what a hoopah is? Yeah, the, the canopy. You know what the hoopah was? That? It, was it was the cloud covering Mount Sinai. It covered the betrothed. It covers the husband, the future husband and the future wife. It's the wedding drama. And from the beginning, what we see is that God wanted a bride for himself. Not just servants, yes, sons and daughters, but even more than that, he wanted a wholehearted, equally yoked bride in us, his church, his beloved. That is the storyline. That he's wanting in us a bride who yearns for him in the way he yearns for her. That's where this is all going for you and for me. And he's doing this in us. It's, it's not by our own strength, certainly not because we're not there. But the Holy Spirit in us is leading us into that place of yearning. He's doing it in, in us. And Brennan Manning, some of you may know that name. He's a famous Christian author and a bit of a tortured mystic. <clears throat> he writes this. He gets it. He says, Christianity is not primarily a moral code or an ethic or a philosophy of life. It's a love affair. Jesus takes us to the Father, and they pour out the Holy Spirit upon us, not to be nicer people with better morals, but brand new creations, prophets, lovers, human torches ignited with the flaming spirit of the living God. That is so good. God, through his brilliant leadership and the, and, and the, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, he's, that, this is where he's taking us. That's where we're headed. That the primary identity that we will walk into eternity with is that of the beloved bride who yearns for her bridegroom. And this brings us to our passage today. So to give you a little context, Jesus and his disciples, they're hanging out at the tax collector's house. His name is Matthew. They're hanging out, they're eating, they're reclining, having a good time. And then some people show up. And I'll take you there in Matthew 9, verse 14. Then John's disciples, so this is John the Baptist. John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered in verse 15, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Then they will fast. John's disciples and the Pharisees, they're the religious elites of the day. They fast like two, three times a week. This is on the regular. 
This is what they do. And so they're looking at Jesus, the rabbi, with all his disciples. They never fast. They're always eating and hanging out and drinking at, you know, the wrong people's houses. The tax collector, really, Jesus? And so they're like, Jesus, what gives, rabbi? How come you're always eating? Look at us. We're fasting. We're giving tithes and offerings. And they're confused. Jesus responds to the question with the question. He says in verse 15, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, in my time here with them, these guys, these 12, I have one objective with them, and it's this. To wound their hearts with the love of the bridegroom and to ruin them for any other lover. It's to addict them to my presence. That's my one objective with them. In other words, I've come to overwhelm their hearts to the end that they would fall in love with me. That they would not only experience me as a king and as a judge, certainly I am those things, but as a bridegroom. A change that change, that just, that was new. Paradigm destroying. He wanted them to know, like King David did, that, this, that, that his steadfast love would be better than wine. Now, do you, do, you, do you remember when Jesus, he had just uh, done a bunch of healing and, and now there are these crowds following him and, and the text says 5,000, but it's really 20,000 people if you add the women and the children who he has to feed. He's got a couple of fish and loaves and, and he gives it to, and he feeds them and there's leftovers. People are astounded and they're following him. Jesus turns to them and he says, listen, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And the disciples are like, what? No, 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 don't say that. It's bad for the brand. You don't know what you're saying. And the text says many of the disciples, they turned away. It walked away. It left him. It was too hard. And so Jesus in that moment, seeing what's happened, he turns, he turns to his 12 and he says, what about you guys? Are you going to leave me too? And do you guys remember what Peter said? Peter turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What we see here is a man that's been marked. He's been wounded by love. He's like, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about there, but I know this, that I have been marked by your love. And so when the bridegroom is taken away, that is when he's crucified and he's resurrected and he ascends into heaven, The disciples will feel a pain, but it's not the pain of religious duty. It's the pain of missing the bridegroom. It's the pain of missing the lover of their souls. Jesus is saying here, the bridegroom will be taking, and when it does happen, pain is going to enter into the core of their being. It's going to be the pain of missing the bridegroom, the pain of missing the lover of their souls, the pain of having been full in their hearts like never before. 
and having it taken away, the pain of having someone see you for the first time, maybe in your entire life, despite all your weakness and darkness and failure, and sees you through and through, and you loved, he loved you still. Having that person taken away. In other words, they will be lovesick. Jesus knows this. And what Jesus is saying is that out of that pain, they will begin to make room in their hearts through fasting. Why? Because fasting is removing a strength in their lives and in doing so they create time and space for the presence of their bridegroom, for their Jesus, for their beloved Jesus. And what they are saying through fasting is this, your steadfast love is better than wine. Jesus is better than anything. Another way to say it is, they will feast on him when they fast. They will make room for him. You know, the mystery of fasting is that when we are physically weak from not eating, we become more sensitive to God and to the things of God. And I'm not sure how to explain that, but if any of you have fasted, you know this to be true. Sensitivity goes through the roof. And the last thing now fasting is about in God's kingdom is religious duty. It's the last thing it's about. That's what the Pharisees made it about. They wanted everyone to know that they were fasting. It was checking off a list. It was done initially out of a spirit of mourning for the Messiah, but over the centuries, it devolved into religious performance. It was that way for centuries, and no one questioned it. No one questioned it until, that is, Jesus shows up on the scene. And now that for the disciples, fasting takes on a whole new meaning. Why? Because because the Messiah had finally arrived. He was there face to face with them. He was eating fish with them. They're joking. They're hanging out. There's no reason to mourn because he was actually with them. And the Pharisees ask, why aren't you fasting, Jesus, you and your disciples? And Jesus is saying, well, it's because the party has started. This is, this is the cocktail hour, which in my opinion is always the best part of the wedding. It's a foretaste, he's saying. The party has started. He's saying, don't you see the dead are being raised, the captives set free, the blind see, the crippled walk, the poor have good news being preached, and the kingdom of heaven is here. You're looking at him. And that's, and that's what he's getting at here, especially in verse 16 and 17. Go with me there. You know, when you first read this section, it can be confusing. Jesus says in verse 16, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. 17, Neither is new wine put into an old wineskin. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled. Skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and, and so both are preserved. What does wineskins and sewing have to do with fasting? Well, Let's talk about the wineskins. Wineskins were made out of goat skin usually, and, what it, and when it's new, you could put new wine into it. And the reason being, when you put new wine into any kind of pouch, it gives off what in the fermentation process? Anyone want to guess? Gas. It gives off gas. And so that, that pouch needs to be able to expand. And so when you have a new wineskin or a new goat skin, it can expand. 
But if you put new wine into a skin that's already expanded, if you put new wine into an old wine skin, that is to say, and, and, and the wine gives off gas as it's fermenting, that old wine skin that's already been expanded, guess what will happen to it? It'll break, it'll explode, it'll burst. Jesus is saying the reasons the Pharisees fast, their reasons for fasting, that is old wineskin. He's saying that wineskin can't expand anymore. It could hardly hold earth. How could it possibly hold heaven? How? He's saying they fasted out of duty. That's the old wineskin. But my disciples, they will fast out of wounded hearts that are lovesick with desire for the bridegroom. That's the new wineskin. The new wineskin is this. It's fasting with hearts that are wounded with desire and not duty. It's, it's hearts that are wounded with love. And the new wine is the spirit of yearning for the bridegroom. The new wine is the Maranatha cry. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The old wineskin, fasting out of duty alone, cannot contain a spirit of yearning. Because duty alone, it cannot possibly hold hearts that are on fire. Duty can't explain love. You know, my wife Carol and I, when we were dating, she wasn't living in Boston proper, like in downtown Boston. I was going to seminary about 30 minutes north, a small town called South Hamilton. Every Friday night, I would drive down 30, 40 minutes to spend time with a bunch of college kids in the church that I was working. I was a college pastor. But that entire night, I was not thinking about those college kids. I was thinking about one person. Her name was Carol Chang. 10 p.m. comes. I'm out. I'm out the door. In my car, I'm going to pick up Carol. And most Friday nights, what we would do is we'd drive to the associate pastor's home who lived in a little town called Somerville. And he and his wife and myself and Carol, we would sit around the table and we would drink, drink tea or whatever we were drinking until 1, 2 a.m., sometimes even later. And I look forward to that so much. And by the time 2 a.m. rolls around, you gotta, I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm so tired, but I could have been there all night. Sleep, who needs sleep? I got to be with Carol Chang all Friday night. I was the one guy who could say that. Can you imagine me doing that every, each and every week out of a sense of duty? You know, can you imagine... Uh, if I told Carol, hey, babe, you know, I'm exhausted. I, I really actually want to go home, but I'm going to hang out tonight because I know it's my duty to be here. I want to be a good soldier about it. <laughs> that would be the end of the relationship. That would be the end of everything, really, to be honest. That would be the end of everything. No, it wasn't anything but duty. What it was and still is is a deep sense, a deep desire, I should say, to know or just to be in the same room as or just to breathe the same air as Carol Chang. I still feel that way. I really do. She was making fun of me this morning because she had a dream about how I was so emotionally needy. <laughs> Sorry, babe, I had to share that. <clears throat> but it's true. It's true. Beloved, I believe this is so important for us to know this, the, the intimacy and the nearness. Um, that God is inviting us into.
is, this is the real article. This is what it's about. And just to be clear, this is not at all in any way sexual. It's a billion miles away from that. But rather, there is a partnership, a closeness and intimacy that he deeply desires with us. It's access to his heart and to his emotions. Now, there's no book in the Bible quite like the Song of Solomon. It was written by King Solomon, David's son. And, and you guys know how the story goes. God approaches Solomon and says, hey, Solomon, I'm going to give you anything you want. Name it. It's yours. And Solomon's like, I want wisdom. So God gives it to him. And on top of that, so much more. So here's Solomon, king of Israel. Probably the second wisest man to live, only second to Jesus. And he chooses to put his wisdom down on paper. And you know what he writes? He writes a love song. He writes a love song. And we call that book the Song of Solomon. That song, the Song of Solomon, of all things. And, and in the natural, it's a song about, not, uh, about married love between a king and his bride. But for centuries and throughout early church history, the way that we have interpreted this book, this song, is about the love and, and, and the intimacy between Jesus, the bridegroom king, and the church is bride. And in chapter 6 of this song, we catch a glimpse of the heart of the song, of the king, I should say. We catch a glimpse of the heart of the king for his bride, the church. He sings this. He says, you are as beautiful as tears in my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as troops with banners. Turn your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Consider this, beloved. All the armies of earth cannot stand against Jesus. All the hosts of hell cannot touch one hair on his head, but one glance from you and from me, and he's overwhelmed. One cry from your heart, he's overcome. That is our Jesus. And when the reality of the bridegroom king touches our heart, that we're deeply loved and we did nothing to earn it or deserve it. Duty is not what spills out. It's desire. And so Jesus calls us to fast, not because it's something others are doing, because we're something we're supposed to do. We fast because fasting makes room in our hearts to feel both the pain of his absence and the pleasure of his presence. Let me say that one more time. Fasting makes room in our hearts to feel both the pain of his absence, of Jesus' absence, and the pleasure of his presence. That's why we fast. And so what are the rewards of fasting? And then we've been talking about ultimately the primary reward of fasting is him. It's his presence. It's feeling the movements of his heart. It's hearing his voice. It's receiving his strength, exchanging our weakness for his strength. Fasting is not an end in itself. It's the means to an end of experiencing God's presence in greater measure. And just to be clear, you don't earn anything. We don't earn anything by fasting. But what it is, what it does is positions us it positions us to feel more of his love and affection for us. And in that place, you're clearing aside the distractions and making room to feel that you are deeply loved and that you've done nothing, absolutely nothing to earn it or deserve it. I want to share, I want to share three practicals on fasting. 
Well, first let me say there's so much online about fasting, about how to do it safely, about how to do it in a way that's honoring of your body. I just really encourage you, if this is at all speaking to you, I would really encourage you to go online and, and do a little bit of research. But there are three things in my own experience that I, I feel are really helpful for me. Three practicals, things I wish someone had told me. There are many, the first one is that there are many ways to fast, but I believe fasting food, for me personally, is the most effective. And that's probably because I'm a food guy. I love food. I have this love affair with food. It's pretty, pretty unhealthy. And so when that gets taken away, it speaks to me real quickly. But I believe this is true for most people. I'm not saying that social media fasts or other kinds of fasts aren't effective. They are. And I believe there's a time and place for all those kinds of fasts. But in my opinion, fasting food is the most effective. The second practical thing I want to share is that fasting occasionally for a particular reason is good. But what I found to be the most transformative is adopting a fasted lifestyle. And what I mean by that is this. It's not that you just see occasional fast. Again, there's nothing wrong with those are good. But fasting on the regular, and you could start with one lunch a week. And I, I know, because I, 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 I've been there, I know how painful that sounds. Just one meal a week, but it's already painful. But I believe that, that there's, there's a grace that will be afforded you when you give up that one lunch. And you know it's coming. You might eat a really big breakfast before that day comes, right? Just to bulk up a little bit. And then eventually you'll start thinking, maybe I don't even need that big breakfast. And eventually you think, maybe I don't need breakfast. And then maybe you don't even need dinner. And so that one lunch becomes a whole day. And every week, Tuesday becomes that day where you know it's going to hurt. But in a way that drives you to feel the presence of God in a way that you don't the other six. It's transformative. It's not going to happen right away, but you will catch fire. Third thing, let me say this as well, is that fasting, like anything, it's done in a spirit of grace. Making room for God's presence is the goal, not perfection. And here's my experience of fasting. Most often when I'm fasting, I'm hungry, I'm grumpy, I'm weak, I'm, I'm kind of hard to be around. And, and my family will testify to this. When, 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 when Appa goes, where Dad goes on the fast, it's like, okay, let's all get ready because... It's like the whole family's going on a fast. Everyone pays a price when dad's unavailable physically as much, I should say. And even some ways, I'm not as present emotionally because I'm wrestling with stuff. But they see the benefits of it afterwards. They see, for me personally, the benefits come after the fast is over. I'm more connected, I'm more present. I might even say I'm more loving, though you'd have to ask my family about that. But we do this not in the spirit or going for perfection, but in the spirit of grace. And if you mess up in the fast, like you eat a cracker or something, or you, you know, pop some nuts, like just push the lead and keep going. You know, like I've, I've taken a couple nuts just to take the edge off on a longer fast. And I'm like, ah, oh, and I'm like, he understands. He loves that we're going after him in that way. You know, there's room, there's grace for, for all of that. So those are the three practicals. I want to ask one more question. How does fasting speak to the hustle? Because that's what we've been talking about. I want King Solomon to speak to us one last time because he understood the hustle, believe it or not. He knew what it was about. 
And he's very honest about it. I think he's actually, this is actually the most honest depiction of the hustle in all of Scripture. And it's in Ecclesiastes 2. Let's read it together. I also, this is Solomon speaking. I also amassed for myself silver and gold and the special treasure, which is in Hebrew the word segula. Can you guys say segula? Segula of kings and provinces. He had the special treasure that was for kings and provinces. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not restrain my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my... I love that. He's so honest. He's like, yeah, I was like pleased with myself. I did all this hard work. I hustled. My heart was pleased. And this was my reward for all my labor, all the stuff that he had gathered. So I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was futility and striving after wind, and there was no benefit under the sun. Do you see the hustle? This kills me because Solomon, like we said, he was at one point the wisest man on earth, and yet he misunderstood the true meaning of segula, of special treasure. You know, in, in Deuteronomy 14.2, Moses tells the people of Israel that they themselves are the segula. They are the special treasure. So let's read it together. He says, for you are a holy people to Yahweh your God, and you, Yahweh, has chosen to be for himself a people, a special treasure, segula, above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Solomon accumulated massive amounts of wealth. He had houses, vineyards, gardens, ponds. Slaves, flocks, herds, singers, concubines, he had it all and more. But were they really Segula to him? I believe Solomon forgot the point. Somehow, somewhere along the way. It wasn't treasure that made him special. It was that he was treasured by God. Owning wealth didn't make him wealthy. He was already wealthy as one of God's Treasured possession is one of God's segula. And all that he had accumulated, he looks upon it and he confesses. He says, this, all of this, it has not moved my heart one inch. What fasting does is it connects us to the deep truth, this deep reality that we are his segula. We are his special treasure, loved and accepted and cherished. And my prayer for us, Beacon, is that we would see the futility and striving for what the world says should be special, that should be our treasure, that would make us special, and instead connect to the heart of God who says that we're already special, that we're already successful because the God of the universe treasures us because of his unending and unfailing love and desire for us, for this is what we were made for. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving access to your heart, giving us access to the creator of the universe, but 
not only the creator of the universe, the lover of our souls. God, we confess that our yearning in this in this world is not always for for you. It's it's for maybe the blessings, maybe the things of you, but not always for you. And so we pray that you would forgive us. We pray for the grace to see your heart as it yearns for us. God, it's a mystery to us, but you desire us. You yearn for us. You desire to be partnered with us in the deepest places of our heart. And we want to walk in the strength and the freedom and the joy of that partnership. Make that our heart's desire. Even today, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and speak into the exhaustion, speak into the tiredness, Speak to the duty. And maybe you're not calling us anything different per se, but you're wanting us to live out of hearts that are on fire, that know that we are desired. God, we know duty cannot hold the kind of love you have for us, so teach us how to connect Teach us how to connect to your heart, to hear your voice, to feel the movements of your heart in our hearts, to know that we are treasured beyond all things in this world. You treasure us. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who demonstrated this to us. Most powerfully on the cross, God, you lost your treasure in your son so that you could have us. Help us to see the price you paid. Let it speak to us of the desire in your heart. Thank you, God. Thank you for the gift of fasting. God, teach us more about what it is, how you want to grace us through this discipline. Would you open the world of fasting to all of us so that we could be blessed walk in deeper intimacy with you. We love you. Thank you for this family. Thank you for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.